Good morning. And you guys are just so much better at this than the 5 o'clock Saturday and the Sunday 9 o'clock. Awesome. You didn't even have to have a do-over. I'm so proud of you. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. I'm well. <laughs> I'm so excited, man. I don't know. I, this is just such a joy to be with you guys. Um, I love the Lord. Love you guys. God loves us so much. Just loves us so much. Thanks for being here. A couple things. We, we're, we're finishing Nehemiah just like that. Chapter 13 today. We're finishing Nehemiah, which means next week we start the book of Philippians. And so you... You guys have homework to do, right? You know your homework, right? Read Philippians all in one sitting. It's four chapters, okay? So try to do that at least once, if not more than once. That would be uh, just amazing. Uh, my wife and I leave. We have a 4 o'clock-ish flight um, out of John Wayne. We're heading to, to Heath, Texas for our church plant out there. Uh, Tuesday night, we're going to do the ordination for Pastor Chris and uh, a bunch of other stuff going on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We fly back Thursday afternoon, I think. So... Uh, be praying for my wife and I for traveling mercies for an effective and productive trip. Um, and of course, for Pastor Chris and his wife Renee and their kids, uh, Finley and Deacon. Please, please keep all of us in your prayers. Would you do that? That'd be great. Um, we had a baby dedication or child dedication last service. It was awesome. Love doing that. It makes me so nervous. I don't know why I get nervous doing child dedications. I don't even have to hold the kid. But. I just want it to be special because I know it's important to our Lord. You know, our kids are such a gift from Him. So, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, the 13th chapter. We, if you're new, we use the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. If you use your phone, go to the NASB. If you need a Bible, there's one right in front of you in the chair in front of you. If you need one, take it home. They're free. But we expect you to read it. (laughs) So, while your thumbs or fingers are in Nehemiah 13, if you've been tracking with us through the first 12 chapters of Nehemiah, which many of you have, for me, and maybe for you, it would seem appropriate that Nehemiah would have ended last week. If you've followed along at all, it would make sense that there would only be a chapter 12 and no chapter 13. Why? Well, let's recap, right? Jerusalem and the wall have been rebuilt. And the Israelites, God's people, have moved back in. They reestablished their relationship with God through this prayer in chapter 9 and through a covenant in chapter 10. And then chapter 12, last week, ends with this great celebration, these two great choirs that go on top of the walls of Jerusalem, and one marches clockwise, and one marches counterclockwise, and then they meet in the house of God to praise and worship the Lord. End of Nehemiah. Nope. There's a chapter 13, oddly enough. And what 13 does, what chapter 13 does, is it teaches us And it warns us. I don't know about you, but if I'm about to do something bad, I would have appreciated if there was a warning. Like, man, if I would have known, maybe I wouldn't have done that. So 13 teaches us and warns us of the need. Things are great. Chapter 12 is over. But 13 tells us that we have a need, and it warns us about what we're going to do to keep that going ongoing efforts in our Christian walk with the Lord, where we get things right, everything's perfect with us and God, we're on the spiritual high, and Nehemiah writes chapter 13 to say, what are you going to do to keep that going? 
Many of us have had that fire burning, and then that fire goes out. Then we have to get it burning again, and then it goes out, and we have to get it burning again. And so I ask you, do, do you and do I, do we have something called a spiritual conservation plan for you and your family? Do you have a spiritual conservation plan? When we run out of water, they come up with a conservation plan for water. And that's a fantastic idea. But what about us? What is our spiritual conservation plan? General William Booth, does anybody know that name? General William Booth? He's the founder of the Salvation Army. And he once said to a group of new officers this. He said, I want you young men always to bear in mind that it is the nature of a fire to go out. So you must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. Isn't that a good word? Nehemiah, at the end of chapter 12, everything seems to be perfect. So guess where he goes? He goes back to Babylon. That's where his job was. He was the cupbearer to the king. So he goes back. It's a year later when 13, the things in chapter 13 are taking place. He's gone about a year and the fire in Jerusalem was already going out. As great as everything is, when we finish chapter 12, within a year it starts to go south. Mm, Let's pray. Almighty God, we are here because I believe each and every one of us wants our fire for you to keep burning. Lord, we want to keep it stirred, we want to keep it fed, and we want to keep the ashes removed. And so we invite you here, we invite you to have your way with us as we wrestle with Nehemiah chapter 13. We love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So here's our outline. There's four stanzas in our 31 verses. The first stanza, verses 1 through 9, is about keeping foreigners out. Like, what, what foreign things, what things in our walk with God, in the house of God, are foreign that don't belong, that should not be a part of God's house, of God's people? And then keep in the funding. So keeping out foreigners and keeping in funding. Meaning, there were, God's people weren't bringing to His house what they were supposed to be bringing to His house. And then the third stanza is protecting the Sabbath, our time with God. Do we protect the Sabbath of our lives? Do we spend time with the Lord? Do we give Him the first fruits of our time? And then the protection of marriage, the thing that's really important to God. Scripturally, we are His bride and He's the bridegroom. So God's all about marriage and He's all about us being equally yoked in our faith. If you're in Nehemiah 13, I want to encourage you to go back a couple of pages to Nehemiah 10. Go back to Nehemiah 10. If you remember, we're not going to go through this, but Nehemiah 10 is the covenant that God's people made with God. They re-covenanted, they re-anteed up. However you say that, anteed up, anteed up. Anyway, they re-covenanted with God in chapter 10. So all the things that they said they were going to do, starting in verse 28, where the obligations of the document goes all the way to the end of chapter 10. All those things that they made a promise to God that they would do is what's being addressed in chapter 13 because they weren't doing it. This is a couple of chapters later, man. It's crazy. So that's what makes up Nehemiah 13 is all the broken promises that they made from the covenant in chapter 10. So let's go through our first stanza, verses 1 through 9. We're going to read 1 through 3 first. But before I start... 
this is just one of those chapters where there's just a few um, tough things to navigate through. And I, I, I just ask for permission to just navigate them as I normally do, which is just honestly preaching God's Word. So if I can get your permission, that'd be great. If I don't have your permission, I don't have a backup plan. I'm probably going to have to do it anyway because I don't know what I would do the rest of my time. But you get what I'm saying, right? Like I just, so when we get there, you'll know what I'm talking about, right? I just want to preach God's Word faithfully. And if the Holy Spirit convicts you in an area, then that's fantastic. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. God loves you and His Spirit is here to convict us and lead us and guide us. And then if you're free from anything that is being, might be challenging for others, then praise the Lord that God's got you in a good place in that regard. Amen? Okay. Let's read verses 1, 2, and 3. Keeping out foreigners. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses. Right? So <laughs> Nehemiah comes back and he's like, okay, we're going to have to open up God's book again. Apparently you guys aren't reading it on your own, right? On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in God's word that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter God's house. The Ammonite and Moabites were sworn enemies of God's people and of God himself. And yet they're occupying his home, his house. Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. Glory be to God. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Okay, so the first thing I want us to focus on in these three verses is this. There's level one, there's level two, and there's level three people of God's Word. I want all of you to be level three people of God's Word. There's level one, there's level two, there's level three. You can't get to level three until you get to level two, and you can't get to level two until you get to level one. Let's, let's, let's break this down. Look at verse one. On that day, they read from the book of Moses. That's what it means to be a level one reader. Are you even a level one person of the word? Is are you reading God's word? That's just level one. Do you read on that day? Do you read his word? So level one, be a reader. Level one, be a reader. Look at Psalm 119, my favorite psalm. It's all about God's word. Psalm 119, about being a reader. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. I, the psalmist says, will be a reader. I'm level one. I will be a reader of your word. Let's go to level two. Let's read verse one. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was what? And there was found. So I can't find unless I read. So level two is you got to be a reader is level one. Level two is be a finder. Level one is be a reader. Level two is be a finder because there was found something about how we should be acting in the house of God, how we should be living our lives. Level one, be a reader. Level two, be a finder. Let's look at Psalm 119 again. Verse 104 says this. The psalmist writes, from your precepts, I get something. I found understanding. And so I hate every false way, which I also find in God's Word. It tells us the right way and the false way. So we must be level one. We must read. We must be level two. We must be a finder. We must be a reader, and we must be a finder. What do you think level three is? Be what? Huh? Say it boldly. Doer. doer. Be a doer. Be a reader. Be a finder. And be a doer. That's absolutely correct. 
Go to James chapter 1. It's in the New Testament after the book of Hebrews. You'll find the book of James. Alvin, thank you for being a cheerleader. I love you for that. After Hebrews, you'll find the book of James. Go to James chapter 1 about being a doer. Many of you perhaps know these verses. James 1, starting in verse 19. This you know, James writes, this you know, my beloved. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Right? Quick to hear. We should be hearers. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word which is able to save your souls. But... Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. And I've used this verse before. It's like, are you a hearer of the word or are you a doer? I'm merely a hearer. Oh, I'm sorry. Right? Nobody wants to be merely a hearer. But prove yourselves doers, not merely a hearer who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. And once he has looked at himself and he goes away, he immediately forgets the kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. God wants to bless us. And it starts, it starts by being readers. It starts then by being finders, and then it starts then by being doers. We must be readers, we must be finders, and we must be doers. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 13, because in verse 3, that's exactly what happens. It says in verse 3, when they heard the law, they did something about it. They heard it, they found it, and they did it. So when they heard, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. So that's our first takeaway is that we are to be level three people of God's Word. Amen? Our second takeaway from those first nine verses is this. (laughs) Check your God space. That's the second takeaway. Check your God space. Let me explain. Look at verses four through nine. Let's read those. Prior to this, Eliashib, who's a priest, he was appointed over the chambers of God's house. And he's related to Tobiah. Remember that name? Remember Tobiah? Good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. Tobiah hates God and hates God's people. But he's renting out a room in God's house. Verse 5 says that um, Eliashib, verse 5, had prepared a, a large room for Tobiah where formerly they used to put the grain offerings and frankincense and utensils and tithes of grain and wine and oil for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers and the priests. But during all this time that I was not in Jerusalem, in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king, and after some time, however, I needed to say to the king, i got to go back. (laughs) So verse 7, so he takes a leave from the king in verse 6, I came to Jerusalem and I learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. And then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils and the grain offerings and the frankincense. So I say again, (laughs) check your God space. 
what's in the space that only God should have in your life? What has replaced your God space? It happens so easily and so quickly. And so I ask you to check your God space. And if you must, please find somebody that will do it for you as well. Sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we don't see the things that are in the God space of our life. And others that love us and know us will say, hey, it looks like something's gotten in the way of your God space. You need to remove that. You need to cleanse that from your life. Look at Isaiah. A little to the right of Nehemiah, you'll, you, know, you have Psalms and then Proverbs, and then uh, you'll run into a big book called Isaiah and then Jeremiah. So look at Isaiah chapter 1. And that's basically what's happening Isaiah's prophesying and he's letting God's people know that something's occupied their God space. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. Verse 2. Isaiah says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. And this is what the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Have you ever revolted against God? Or does that word seem a little harsh to you? When something else occupies our God space, we have revolted against God. But they have revolted against me. Verse 3, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Something has occupied their God's space. Very harsh words from both Nehemiah and Isaiah. So, the third thing from these first nine verses, this first stanza that I want you to take away, the third thing is we serve a however God. We serve a however God. Look at verse 2, back in Nehemiah chapter 13. So he said, you shan't, you sh-, in verse 1, there shouldn't be no Ammonites or Moabites because, verse 2, they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against God's people to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. I don't know how that works. I don't know how God does it, but I know that that's who, that's who God is and that's what God does. We serve a however God. Amen? We serve a however God. Things can be looking gnarly. However, God can turn things. Things can be going south. However, God can turn things. As He chooses, when He chooses, we serve a however God. I don't know about you, but that just brings up a lot of things for me. There's a lot of things that could have happened or should have happened in my life. However, God has spared me from so many things and He's done so many great things in me and through me and for me. I'm so grateful. We serve a a however God who can turn things, right? That's what it says. He did this. He turned a curse into a blessing. Scripture tells us that He turned water into wine. It says that He turned the Red Sea into dry ground. It says that He turned sinners into saints. He turned death into resurrection. And He turned sins that are as scarlet into things that are white as snow. We serve a however God that can turn things. Oh, thank You, Jesus. Thank You, Lord. Our second stanza is verses 10-14 through about keeping in funding. Let's read verses 10-14 through in Nehemiah. Chapter 13, verses 10 through 14. I also discovered, Nehemiah says, 
<laughs> he's discovering a lot. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away from God's house, each to his own field. And so I reprimanded the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? That question is put this way. He's saying to all of God's people, please tell me one good reason why God's house should be forsaken. Who would like to go first? That's what he's asking them. All you people, give me one good reason why God's house should be forsaken. Why is the house of God forsaken, verse 11 says. Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. And then all Judah then brought to the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I put all these people, and they were considered reliable, it says at the end of 13, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. And then he says in verse 14, he says, Remember me for this, O my God. Don't blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for your house and its services. So, in that last stanza, I said one of our takeaways was to check your God place. This takeaway is contribute to your God place. <laughs> All right? So we've got to check our God space, but we've got to make sure that we contribute to our God place. See, verse 11 is the key verse, which I've already pointed out. When verse 11 says, why is the house of God forsaken? You know why he asked that? Go back to verse 39 of chapter 10. When they wrote their covenant to God, the very last thing they say in verse 39 in chapter 10 is this, thus we will not neglect the house of our God. And so Nehemiah has every right to say, why is the house of God forsaken? So look, we know this. The enemy, the devil, Satan. Does he tell truths or does he tell lies? Lies. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's the father of lies. Look at John 8, verse 44. Jesus says this about the devil. He says to some religious leaders, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. That's his gift. (laughs) He is a liar and the father of lies. So, as such... He, the enemy, desires to destroy the very places that truth is proclaimed. Which is where? The church. Look at 1 Timothy 3.15. So if, if Satan's a liar, he hates truth. And that's where the church comes in. In case I'm delayed, Paul writes to Timothy, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So that's what's at stake here for Nehemiah. That's what's at stake today. When we don't bring to God's house, the enemy shuts down truth. Perhaps the biggest contributor to preventing truth from being proclaimed is to reduce the number of churches that do so. Makes sense, right? You want to reduce the truth that's out there? Just reduce the number of places that proclaim the truth, which is what the church is. They are the pillar and support of the truth. Check this out. Did you know that between four and 5,000 churches close every year? Four to 5,000 churches close their doors every year. 
if you do the math, it's like 12 or 13, I think, a day. When we woke up this morning, 12 or 13 churches no longer exist. When you wake up tomorrow, 12 or 13 no longer exist. When you wake up Tuesday, 12 or 13 no longer exist. And when you wake up Wednesday, the same thing. On a more positive note, about four to 5,000 churches start every year. Right? However, most of those churches, one out of five, only make it to year five. Four out of five don't. Do you know the number one reason they don't make it that far? Finances. That's a reality. So churches are closing down. And churches are opening up, but they're not sticking because they run out of finances. This is the part where I asked for permission earlier, right? Well, it'll be over soon. Here's some interesting facts. This is from June of 2016. Those who tithe in a typical church in North America, about 10 to 20%. And tithe, some people don't actually know this, but tithe actually means one-tenth. That's what the word tithe means, right? So people who actually give one-tenth of their income is 10 to 20% nationwide. The average Christian gives about 2.5% of their income. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. During the Great Depression, Christians gave 3.3% of their income, and today it's about 2.5%. Nearly 10% of anybody that makes 20000 or less, 20000 or less, 10% of those people actually tithe 10% of their income, which is remarkable. Those who make 75000 and above, the other end of the spectrum, less than 1% actually tithe 10%. So the more we make, the less we give percentage-wise of our income. I've been guilty of that in years past. It happens. Nearly 40% Nationwide, nearly 40% of regular church attenders don't give anything at all. One commentary says this, I love it. When God's people start to decline spiritually, and that's what Nehemiah saw. When they start to decline spiritually, one of the first places it shows up is in their giving. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says this. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I heard this years ago. Somebody says, where's your heart? And I'm like, uh, what do you mean? And they're like, uh, give me your checkbook. Because I can tell you where you're, you just give me your checkbook. I can tell you where your heart's at. Right? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Okay, we're done. You guys are fine. Now, this is an incredibly generous church. I, I, I've said that, and I'll just keep saying it. So, where the Lord convicts you, just work on that with the Lord. Where He does it, man, just celebrate that you're being obedient in that regard. This is a, an amazingly generous church. You guys have supported the church plant very well. Thank you so much. You've supported this church very well. We're exactly halfway through our fiscal year, which started September 1. So September, October, November, December, January, February was last weekend. And through six months, we're, our giving's up from the year before in the same first six months by like ten, eight, nine, ten thousand $10,000 a month, something like that. So we're doing well. We're doing well. Awesome. Everybody's still here, right? All right. <laughs> Our third stanza. You guys are so good. Thank you so much. Nehemiah 
13, 15 through 22, protecting the Sabbath, 15 through 22. In those days I saw in Judah some who were trading, or treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day that they sold food. And the men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah and on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same, so that our God brought on us and on the city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came about that just as uh, it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors to Jerusalem be shut, and that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath was over. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate so that no load would enter into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the, the, the traders and merchants of every kind uh, spent the night outside Jerusalem. And so I warned them and I said to them, I love this, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'm going to use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this, he says it again, also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Keeping the Sabbath is greatly emphasized in the Old Testament. Prophets like Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah warned God's people of carelessness in keeping the day set apart for rest and worship. This Sabbath, this one day out of seven, which was separated for God, is unknown in the ancient world outside of God's people, outside of Israel. As part of the Ten Commandments, what the Sabbath did or does is it emphasizes that our time belongs to God. Not just our finances, our time also is His. Everything is His. Time to be with Him, time to worship Him, time to nurture our relationship with Him, time to be led by Him. The prophets recognized that when the people became careless about the Sabbath, it was an indication of their indifference to God's will in other areas of their life as well. When we quit giving God of our time, then we quit giving of our finances, we quit giving of our service, we quit giving of whatever He's asking us to do biblically. We just don't make time for God. And that's what was going on in all of Nehemiah chapter 13. So check it out. In verses 17 and 18, they both end the same way. It says that they were profaning the Sabbath day. Verse 17, and it says they, by profaning the Sabbath in verse 18. And perhaps it seems severe in our text. Perhaps it seems severe that Nehemiah would command the doors to be shut to the city. And then it says in verse 21 that he would use force in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Does that seem severe on Nehemiah's part? To shut the doors and to even use force to keep the Sabbath holy? Well, let me ask you this. How does what he did compare to how you and I protect our schedules in order to worship our God and trust Him with our lives and with this asset that we call time? I think Nehemiah absolutely got it right. 
I think you got it right. And maybe we should be as severe with our time. You know why? Because <laughs> what God did for us is pretty severe, isn't it? What God did for us by sending Jesus to die for us, the worst, most humiliating kind of death, saved for the worst kind of criminals, a crucifixion, is pretty severe. May you and I, like Nehemiah, be equally rigorous, equally severe about protecting our time with the Lord and trusting Him with our time. I'm telling you, I don't know how this works, but when I do that, somehow hours get added to my day, to my week, to my month. It's just crazy. When I prioritize God, when I give Him my time, everything gets done just fine. It's weird. It's crazy. I came in this week on Tuesday because I'm leaving today and I had a list of things other than my normal responsibilities. I'm like, oh dear God, I hope I can get some of this, most of this done before Sunday hits. I got it all done on Tuesday. All of it. I didn't think I'd get 70% of it done by the time I jumped on a plane. I got it all done on Tuesday. I didn't sleep, but I got it done. It was a long day. It was about a 13-hour day, but man, I was determined. I was like, yeah, God, you're doing it, man. This is great. It's crazy. It's just true. So here's a really loaded question. I wonder, just think about your life. Over the past number of years, whether that's two years, five years, ten years, has the Sabbath invaded other things in your life where you say, I can't do that anymore. I've got to spend time with God. I can't do that anymore. I've got to spend time with God. Has, the, has that invaded other things in your life more than the other things in your life have invaded the Sabbath? Do you get the question? Who's winning? Are the other things invading your time with God or is your time with God invading those other things? For most of us, if we're being honest, I would venture to say it's usually the things of the world get into the way of the things of God. Usually. I've gotten busy. I've lost my habit. And, and that's what Nehemiah says. We can't do that because it all falls apart. Jesus said in Matthew 6, he said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and what? All these things will be added unto you. Do we believe him? I hope we do. Our last and fourth stanza is protection of marriage. Let's read 23 through 31. Protecting marriages. In those days I also saw the Jews... Boy, Nehemiah, that's a rough day, man. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them. Check that. This is a gnarly verse. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God. Now, if you're new here, we stopped doing that last year. It just seemed a little harsh to me. But we're thinking of bringing it back. I'm going to continue. There's a reason. That all makes sense. If you, if you understand the Mosaic Law, these are all things that, were, that, that God covenanted, and they covenanted with God. He says, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon 
king of Israel. Did he not sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there's no one like him. He was loved by God. God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the other part of the Bummer brothers. So I drove him away from me. And then verse 29, he says, Remember them, O God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And thus I purified them from everything foreign, and I appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, he says a third time, remember me, O my God, for good. So in verse 26, as we just read, Nehemiah puts King Solomon on display for all of us to take a peek at. Right? What does it say in verse 26? Did not Solomon sin in this very same way? Among all the people, there's nobody quite like him. Loved by God, God made him king. Nevertheless, even the foreign women caused him to sin. Solomon is known for his 3,000 Proverbs. Well, you can learn about that in 1 Kings chapter 4. He's known for 3,000 Proverbs and 1,005 songs. That's what 1 Kings chapter 4 tells us. He's known as one of the wisest men to have ever lived. But verse 26 tells us that even he sinned because of foreign women. He wasn't able to sustain. And so what that means is that even the best of our humanity, even the best of us, represented here by Solomon, is to be obedient or sin will reign. We either be obedient or sin will enter, as is portrayed by this wisest man called Solomon. So, we also know that the New Testament does not condemn marriage between different races. Not at all. But what it does do is it warns us against marriage with unbelievers, doesn't it? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. We're encouraged by Paul. He says, do not be bound together. It doesn't say be careful of being bound together. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? One danger is that it denies children the blessing of being brought up in a family where faith is consistently encouraged, as we saw during the 9 o'clock service when John and Justina dedicated little David to raise him up in the ways of the Lord. As we wrap this up, let's look at the following verses. Look at verse 30. At the end of this, Nehemiah again purifies the people. Thus, I purified them from everything. Is this not one of the primary roles of leadership in the church? It's one of the primary roles that I have as a pastor. It's one of the primary roles that we share as pastors and as elders and trustees is to make sure that God's house and God's people remain pure. It's a big responsibility. And looking at you, I'm doing a great job. It's a big role for us. Thank you for making that role easy. Thank you for praying for us. I also want to look at three verses that I've mentioned earlier. Look at verse 14, where Nehemiah says, he says it three times, first time in verse 14, he says, remember me for this. 
I love that he is not afraid to say to God, remember me for my obedience. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of God and its services. He says the same thing in verse 22. At the end, he says, For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. And then at the very end, in verse 31, he says, Remember me, O my God, for good. Nehemiah, is, he's fighting with God's people. I'm sure it felt very lonely for him. And he's just saying, Oh God, re- remember me for my faithfulness to what you've called me to do. But here's what it also tells us is that Nehemiah wanted his reward from God, not from men. Nehemiah wanted his reward from God, not from men. If we're doing things for men, there's no reward there. It's gone. But if we do it for the Lord, that's the true, truest form of serving him. He wanted his reward from God, not from men. And should we not, like Nehemiah, and this is what I love, listen. Oh, I love this. Should you and I, Should we not, just like Nehemiah, expect favor from the Lord when we act favorably for the Lord? Should we not expect favor from the Lord when we act favorably for the Lord? How the Lord does that, when the Lord does it, that's up to Him. But we should expect favor from our God when we are doing things favorably for Him. Amen? Yes, church, as we finish Nehemiah. It is known, this book, Nehemiah, is known for the walls of Jerusalem. But more emphasis in this book is found in his commitment to purity. That's the real purpose of the book of Nehemiah. It's keeping it clean, keeping it pure. Nehemiah was persistent in seeking purity, seeking that goal. May we be persistent as well. It's going to take persistence to keep things clean. Make no mistake, make no mistake, make no mistake. It takes work to maintain correct priorities. It takes work. It takes work. I'm going to close with this quote from Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers says this, I love it. He says, Today the world has taken so many things out of the church, and the church has taken so many things out of the world that it is difficult to know where you are. That's what, that's what Nehemiah's fear was. Is I'm having a tough time understanding God's house from not God's house. It's a good word for us. Amen? What a great chapter. I'm going to pray and invite the worship team up to close us in song. And as always, if you need prayer, please, I beg you, go see our, our prayer team over here. If you need prayer, they'll lift you up to the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful to be here, to wrestle with Your Word, to be purified by Your Word. Lord, I thank You that this church takes Your Word seriously, that we, we recognize that we are to be uh, readers, we're to be finders, but we're also to be doers. Lord, if we're not reading, help us just to start at level one. Help us just to read Your Word. And the Lord, as we do, Holy Spirit, empower us to be finders as well, so that as we find things in Your Word, then we can then do those things. Have your way with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.